You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here this day as we celebrate the resurrection. And uh, we are thrilled you are here. Um, You know, too often, Christians are portrayed as more or less you turn your brain off when you walk through the church doors. Have you ever had that kind of feeling? And you basically come into a group trance we call worship, and then you just say amen to anything the preacher says, and it's an emotional appeal that is made, and you leave good with uh, kind of a lot of good feelings, but not much depth that actually happens, not much substance. Now, that is a caricature of the Christian church, But I think there's some reason why it's even possible to make that caricature. Do you understand? Because we fall into that. I'm not against emotional appeal. But there is so much more to the resurrection than just getting whipped up and excited and happy Eastering each other. Okay? It's not that Paul talks about a warm, fuzzy story today. It's not a Hallmark movie by any means, but rather the resurrection is an earth-shattering event of encountering the risen Christ, and it actually went against everything that Paul himself once stood for. He was, it was a confrontation with him over his religiousness, and we're going to read um, probably the most important resurrection chapter in the entire Bible, we're going to read quite a bit of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today, it's as he now is dealing with a wayward church in Corinth, and they're all confused about this topic of resurrection and what it means and does it matter and all of that stuff. And Paul deals with his own issues in this, as well as the reality and the foundation. As he says, you will read in the first couple of verses, you'll hear that word. It's something on which we can stand. That is, there's something solid about this. It's not just a wish dream, a hope, but it's a reality. It's history. It's actuality. So without further ado, we're going to start reading, and it is a long section, but I think you'll understand why. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 19. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you, there's that word, stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and you also believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he was raised, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Notice in this text, what's really amazing is how much logic and reasoning and argumentation that's going on in this text. Why all this deductive reasoning going on? Why this argumentation? Part of it is, I think, honestly, think of who's writing this. This is Paul. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was religious to the utmost, the greatest, the best that he could ever be. He was one who was trying to follow all 613, yes, 613 mitzvot, commandments in the Torah and follow them to, to the utmost, beyond what was expected by anybody else. And the resurrection of Jesus actually was contrary to everything that he had ever wanted or believed in. He is the last person, if I would say one of the last, if not the last person, to ever believe that a human being should be worshipped and glorified and honored and divine. The first century the whole uh, Jewish understanding of their faith was <laughs> we went into exile once over worshiping idols. We will never allow it again. And Paul was <laughs> totally aligned with that. In fact, they felt the Roman occupation they were under was still somehow they weren't doing it right. Things were not going well. They would not give honor to Caesar, or worship him at all as divine in any way. They wouldn't allow any images of Caesar or anything to get in the way or ever get in the way of the Ten Commandments that God had given them. So what brought Paul so opposed to this Christian sect, this wayward sect, as he would see it, what brought him from basically one of the greatest um, antagonists against it to the greatest proponents and missionaries ever? And the answer is what we're talking about today, the resurrection. It is actually the monumental, comprehensive argument that addressed Paul's reason, his conscience, and his heart. And that's what we're going to be exploring today and how um, maybe as we explore this, just as Paul was converted, changed, transformed by the message of the resurrection, we too, when you see the reason and the appeal to your conscience and your heart about the resurrection. But first of all, <clears throat> your reason. And Paul is dealing with that in this passage quite a bit. The Corinthians seemed to be totally confused whether there was even resurrection possible. In fact, they grew up in a culture. Why would anybody want the body to be resurrected? Because, you know, this world, material world, is kind of bad. So let's just live spiritually. And Paul said, not at all. 
there is a resurrection. And we know that because Jesus himself has been resurrected. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul writes this, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He is going to make throughout this entire chapter and read the whole thing sometime, a very logical, deductive argument for the fact of the resurrection. And in verses 3 to 9, as we read before, you're going to see the historical case of the resurrection and why we can believe it. There are kind of three uh, arguments that he is chaining together, linking together all the way through. Uh, first, in verse 4, he tells us that Jesus was buried in a tomb, and on the third day it was empty. By the way, even Jesus' opponents, the Jewish leaders, the Romans, everyone agrees the tomb was empty. No one... They try to explain how it was empty, but they all agreed it was. And then Paul goes on and says, secondly, there were hundreds, up to 500 at one time, eyewitnesses who saw the resurrection. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, the majority of people who saw this themselves are still here. Go ask them. If you have questions about it, ask the eyewitnesses to what happened. And then the third that is related to this as well is the fact that they had changed lives. He says, of all the people in Judea who saw the risen Christ, you can talk to them and see that their lives have still made a difference. By the way, Paul is writing this letter of 1 Corinthians only 16 to 18 years after the event of the resurrection. And that most people were still alive. And that 16 to 18 years, he could say, look at all 500 or more of them, and you will not find one who has changed their mind, who has kind of pulled back, who has left the faith, or who has not committed themselves to this path and to great uh, risk of their own lives. They all say it. If there were just a handful of eyewitnesses who had kind of given up, gone back to, quote, normal, whatever normal is, and there would be some real doubt to the whole message. You know, good reason to say, yeah, well, maybe it's not what everybody said it was. So those three arguments together, the tomb empty, hundreds of eyewitnesses who testify to it and the changed lives of those witnesses um, testify logically to your reason. This is something to take seriously. Uh, the German scholar Wolfhart Pannenberg wrote it this way, the early Christians could not have possibly preached the resurrection of Christ publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and these hundreds of eyewitnesses existed. You just couldn't get away with it, ever. There'd be too easy. You could find the body. You could show the tomb wasn't empty. You could find some witnesses who recanted. It'd be easy to dispel it, especially, like I said, as considering these first century Jewish people were strictly and polemically monotheistic. They would not ever even mention hardly God's name. They would just say Lashem or Hashem, the name 
or Adonai, as close as they'd get to the name of God, because they didn't want to mispronounce God's name, let alone would they give anyone ever any glory or honor that was due to God alone. It's one of the reasons why they were so difficult for Rome, because Rome just wanted them to say Caesar is Lord, and they refused. They would refuse that. So how in the world, how in the world do these Jewish first century Second Temple people just be so transformed? N.T. Wright writes an entire book on this called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's about this thick. It's really worth a read, but it's, it's kind of a plod through it all. And he says that's exactly what. A historian has to come up with some understanding, some way to figure out plausibly how did the uh, Christian church explode on the scene over the first couple hundred years, that if you look back at the primitive message, it was always about the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is no primitive Christianity that was just about him loving people or being a nice guy. It was always about this message. So how in the world, and he says the only historical, historically accurate explanation that anyone has come up with throughout history that fits into that first century is that the resurrection, they believe the resurrection actually happened. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, another person, she uh, writes uh, in it uh, something very blunt and to the point, but true. If Jesus were not raised from the dead, you'd never have heard of him. <laughs> you might think, well, well, maybe. No, you wouldn't. Uh, do you realize this? When a person is crucified, the purpose was not just to kill them, but to wipe them from enti the entire history of the world so that no one would even mention that person's name. And in fact, up until Jesus of Nazareth, we do not have in the historical record the name of one individual who was crucified, though thousands had been. He's the first person that we know the name of someone crucified. Isn't that amazing? Now, after his death and resurrection, we have other people being named later, but never before. The audacity, too, the, pro, uh, the total preposterous nature. You see, when a person was crucified, they were basically being publicly ridiculed like no one ever, stripped naked, stripped of all human dignity, treated like an insect at best, not even to be named or recounted or buried or cared about ever again. Don't even think about it. Roman society wouldn't even talk about crucifixion because it was so bad. And to have then the Christian church immediately in this book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul will say he glories in the cross of Christ, that's absurd, unless something else is going on. The resurrection only makes it possible to even talk about the crucifixion and to understand it as something good, like we call Good Friday. Now, this is all directed to your reasoning, and you might go, well, OK, this sounds pretty good. But well, you said 500 witnesses at once. What if, what if, wouldn't it make sense if they could just all have like hallucinated together? Group hallucinations, right? 
So Lee Strobel, he's a Chicago Tribune a reporter um, on crime, et cetera. And he uh, was an agnostic himself, but he started to explore this whole idea of Jesus, of Nazareth, and history, and trying to figure out historically, does this even make sense? And in so doing, he, uh, he became a Christian. And in it, he uh, wrote, and he writes, I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claimed to see Jesus after he died, it was a, a hallucination. He said, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. <laughs> that might be a little. Um, or Charles Colson, I think, has even more humor. Uh, he was a member of the Watergate scandal under uh, Richard Nixon. And he said it this way, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. <laughs> so then you go like, OK, this is all great. This is true. So it happened. but. Or, well, maybe, but how would I know? I mean, Paul, Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus. Do I have to wait for something like that? I'm not going to have a resurrection event like that happen. And most people have not. How would Paul respond to all that? We know how he'd respond because this is the letter in which he responds to people who never saw Jesus raised from the dead. The people in Corinth had no understanding of it. They didn't see it up front. And in fact, their whole culture, the Greco-Roman culture, Corinth is in Greece, kind of denied the um, goodness of this material world. And they didn't think resurrection would be valuable at all. So he's appealing to them in this passage as he appeals to us. And another time that uh, Paul does this in Acts chapter 26, he is now towards the end of his life, I guess. Uh, he has a few more years. He's going to be uh, moved to Rome under imprisonment. But he's at Caesarea Philippi on the coast of the Mediterranean. And it is Festus and King Agrippa who are together there. And Paul is in prison because of a riot that happened when he went into Jerusalem. And so they say, hey, let's get to know him a little better and what the case is all about. So Festus brings him before him. King Agrippa had been in Galilee and done his whole uh, ruling from there at that point in time. And so Paul talks to Festus and to King Agrippa right there. And he um, speaks about the birth of the life, the death of Jesus, and his resurrection. And right at that moment, Acts 26 says this. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He's saying to King Agrippa, hey, you know. You know the public record on this. You know it's been said. You know it's not a secret that the tomb was empty. You know about those eyewitness sightings. 
You know all of these things. And Paul is also saying, I didn't want to believe any of it either. In fact, I opposed it. I didn't want to believe in the resurrection of that crucified one from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus actually went absolutely opposite everything that Paul wanted to believe. You do realize that, right? I've kind of mentioned that already. But he didn't want to believe in Jesus because he didn't want that kind of a king and that kind of a god who would do that kind of an event. Cursed is everyone who's on the tree. How in the world does that make any sense? On the contrary, this whole Jesus thing and the death and resurrection of Jesus upended, turned inside out, and put to death, actually, Paul's religiosity and everything that he stood for for 30 years of his life, everything that he tried to accomplish. And that's why in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about everything that was good is now considered manure, scubalon, terrible. That's the change that happened to him. Jesus was a threat to everything that he had stood for. W.H. Auden talked about this. Um, he is an author. I've uh, read one or two of his novels. And he talked about the logic behind it and why it's important. You don't need a God. You don't need a Jesus who meets your wishes. You don't need a Jesus who just affirms what you already have. You need a truth that actually can contradict you. W.H. Auden had uh, been uh, grown up in the church, left it, became an agnostic and atheist throughout much of his life, but then he came back to the faith that he once had denied. And all of his literary friends, all the people in Oxford and Cambridge and other learned circles thought he was nuts. And they thought, oh, he's just going back. It must meet some deep-seated childhood need that he has. He wants to just be romantic. He just wants a warm fuzzy. And Auden writes this, I believe because he fulfills none of my dreams because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. You need a Jesus who is not the product of what you want. You need a God who actually can uh, contradict you when you hate yourself. A Jesus who can love you when you are loathing yourself. A redeemer who saves you when you cannot stand. Who can hold you together when you're falling apart. If he's just a confirmation of what you already think and know and experience, then that's just not going to be enough. You need a God who actually stands up to you and stands for you. And that's what W.H. Auden was saying. That's what he experienced. All of these are arguments towards your reason, um, the longest of the three, by the way. We're getting to the conscious next. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Whew. Can you just think about this? How did Paul get past his past? 
I mean, in verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you know what his past was? It wasn't just persecuting. He actually killed people, put them in prison, tortured them. He said they were terrible, that they were heretical, stoned them, get rid of them. He was at Stephen's martyrdom and egging it on. We know that in the book of Acts. How do you get past that? How do you get past that? And yet, it, just after this, he will say that, um, but I've worked harder than all of them. I'm probably the greatest of the apostles. And you go like, whoa, wait a minute. How do you do that? You just said you were the worst, and now you're the best. You know, for most of us, our self-image is based on our performance, how we're doing at work, how we're doing with people, or it's based on the opinions of others, you know, what they're saying about us, our evaluations, um, formal and informal, all the time, tell us how good we are as a person. The resurrection changes all of that. In 1 Timothy, Paul claims he's the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. That's present tense, not just in the past. And yet, when he met the risen Jesus, he realizes, my sense of self, my worth is not based on me. It's not based on my performance. It's not based on what other people think. It's based on Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. In Christ, he knows uh, he is the most wicked ever, and yet at the same time, he is absolutely forgiven and loved at the same time. So you can say, I am not in my sins because of the resurrection. It isn't that Jesus simply raised from the dead, but it's the crucified one who paid for our sins who is raised from the dead. The one that was condemned to hell, the one that was wiped out of this world, the one that was thrown away is the one now who you can center your life on because he will accept you. He loves you completely, absolutely, with no questions. He's gone through it all, and he still wants you. The resurrection is precisely the place where you find your identity and your conscience is freed from anything because it's centered on him. The resurrection doesn't negate the crucifixion. It confirms it. It affirms it. It actually validates it and celebrates it. We can glory in the cross of Christ. It doesn't minimize it, but it maximizes it, and it universalizes it. So it's for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Fleming Rutledge says, The resurrection is precisely the vindication of a man who was crucified doesn't wipe it out. It doesn't put it to the side. It actually says, this is the one who was crucified for you. And now he reigns forever in your place and for you. Because Christ has been raised, Paul would say, you are not in your sins. When the Father looks at you, he does not see your record, but the record of Jesus, your Savior. You are viewed in terms of his record. He sees you as holy and perfect freed from your past, freed from what others say, freed from any guilt or shame or fear. Your conscience might try to accuse you, and Jesus will, and the resurrection silences that accusation. And then finally, the argument to your conscience, Paul will say, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
You know, it just doesn't work for just now. If it's just about now, well, there's no reason for Paul to live the way he did. He was giving of himself, risking everything, selflessly loving others. You know, he'll quote later on in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the hedonist poet saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. You know, whatever. That's the way to live if it's just for this life. But Paul has enormous courage. It's not just for this life. You've got an eternity before you with your God in a whole new heaven and earth. You've got everything given to you in Jesus Christ, secure and firm. And that's why Paul can take the biggest chances, risk everything, and do everything. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 30 to 31, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus. I die every day. I am taking risks all the time, and I can, because I know what my future is. My future is in Jesus Christ. The resurrection frees you like Paul, frees you with your use of time, frees you with your money, frees you to love others in ways that don't make sense if it's just for this life, but it isn't. Those things that you have done that nobody has ever recognized, those things that you have done just because it was the right thing to do, they're going to get celebrated in eternity. They will. I like how Robin Perry talks about the direction this world is headed. He says, the future of the cosmos is written in the risen body of Jesus. To see his resurrection body is to glimpse the destiny of this world. Jesus is the future. I don't have a lot of hope in how human beings could work out our future. <laughs> All the moves we make seem to kind of backfire in some ways, or it's just one power against another. But the hope we have is that Jesus has already worked out that future. It's secure. It's sure. So the last pages of the New Testament are not a story of cataclysm, as a lot of people think Revelation is. It's actually the story of hope and restoration and the renewal of all things where heaven and earth meet in a great marriage and celebration all centered on the Lamb who was slain, Jesus. He is the center of it all. So do you see, in a sense, how... The resurrection is this comprehensive, magnificent argument appealing to your reason, your conscience, and your heart. May we be changed like Paul was. Let's pray. Lord God, um, <laughs> we are uh, astounded and amazed this day. We celebrate together. We are filled with your joy, but it's much more than just um, a warm sense of our feeling or subjective experience. It's the reality, Lord, that as we research, as we look, as we um, try to find the truth, Lord, that you are a deeper truth than we could ever encounter, and uh, you have encountered us. Your word comes to us, Lord. Your gospel truths are there. We can stand on it. 
Lord, when we especially are doubting, when we are especially uh, condemning ourselves or feeling, Lord, the weight of our own uh, uncertainties, Lord God, or our anxieties, may your message come through loud and strong. We pray that you would work in us exceeding and abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine because of your resurrection power. And right now we do ask, Lord, that you would bring that resurrection power into our lives and in our hearts in many ways. You know those who need your healing touch. Lord God, we lift them up. For those who have experienced loss and grief, that this resurrection gospel would give them the hope, Lord, they will see their loved ones again. We especially remember Steve um, Gallup, Lord, as he is still, just in a short month, lost his wife and uh, has moved now, Lord, but is definitely, Lord, um, he, he can know for sure that Sharon will be there, that she is there now with you, Lord Jesus, and he will see in the resurrection just how glorious you are. We lift up to you, Lord, um, Haley Hennehan's mother, who um, we pray your healing hand on her as she awaits results of some diagnostic tests. We pray that you work beyond what we can even pray for and that you are glorified in her life, that you would comfort the family and give them resurrection hope this day. We lift up to you, O Lord, our own world and our own country, Lord, that seems to be at times going in 12 different directions at once, confused, wondering, questioning, doubting, filled with anxiety, filled with sadness, filled with just the sense of something's not quite right. Well, Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you personally. We need you corporately. We need you across this globe, Lord Jesus. And we know your kingdom is the everlasting kingdom. And you are the future, Lord Jesus. Help us to share that hope with our neighbors and others. Help us to serve them in their needs, to be free with our time, to be free with our uh, treasures, to be freed, Lord, to love and serve um, for your sake, to make improvements in this world for your sake, Lord Jesus, to show you glory in all that we do. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as we offer um, just a small portion of what you've given us, Lord. We can never outgive you. As the offering is collected, Lord, we ask that you would use it for your kingdom's sake, for this resurrection hope, and that you would also prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper that we will receive momentarily. Lord, just like Paul, we are chief of sinners, and yet you died for us, Lord Jesus. We are unworthy, and yet you invite us. You give us yourself in a miraculous way, Lord Jesus. Your resurrection presence is right here with us, for us. And as we receive, Lord, the bread, the wine, your body and blood, we pray that you would nourish us and grow us closer to you. So forgive us our sins, Lord, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness for your name's sake. And empower us to move out to be your people, to represent you in this world. All things, things we pray in your precious name this day. Amen.